Welcome to 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as the other option. And this series features a deep dive into the DMG rule supplement series of books. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? On this, the seventh day of Edition Wars, my seven swans uh, singing came along and delivered the complete book of villains. This second edition source book was written by Kirk Botula and was published in 1994. Known as DMGR6, it is the sixth in a series of nine DM-focused books for second edition AD&D. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather covered books that were soft cover, roughly 100 pages, very, very nice. They sort of are the DM's answer to the brown covered players books for you know kits and races and all that stuff from second edition very nice series of books and this one oh oh this one is so good i am of course not alone i am here with my wonderful co-host brandis how are you tonight sir i'm well thank you and do you have do you have an intro you'd like to give about this book well um this is a book that i think has a lot of value, but I think we're going to find that it takes a lot of energy to uh, get it to yield that value properly. I think that it is not as mentally kind of use it tonight as uh, DMGR1, uh, mm -hmm. where that's a, a real strong suit of just uh, advice, use it tonight, advice, use it tonight kind mm -hmm. of sense. I think that we're going to see that you really need to digest this and internalize it to make any of it work. Um, and this is me backfilling why I did not get enough out of this book when I was actively playing 2E and, um, you know, a, a literal teenager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I don't disagree with you. I do think that this book is very... Um, if you if you're going to split things into this is a very theoretical book versus a very mechanical book versus a very direct advice book, like if those are the three kinds of columns that we could fill, this one definitely is on the th theoretical side. It definitely yeah. is trying to tell us some sort of long term. Here's how to here's some knowledge you can use in the long term, right? You're probably right. not going to read this and go, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to use it tonight. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, one thing it has going for it, though, is that if you have no interest in tabletop games whatsoever, but you understand them okay, and you're just a fantasy novelist, I mean, great book. Buy it tonight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really, really good for like discussing character, how to it reveal character, how to make characters memorable, all this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, with a particular tilt toward, you know, the bad guys. Right. Right. And so the framing that this book uses, and it uses it over at least the first half. Um, and, I, and I think in the second half too, although it's not as prevalent in the second half, but the framing that this book uses is that it presents a villain 
And then when it discusses these various techniques and, and sort of thought exercises regarding how to think about your game and, and run your game and how to think about your campaign and how to plan things, uh, it uses the same villain and it, and it uses that villain as the exemplar to go through and, okay, so if here's the advice and then here's how to use it, here's how it would apply to this very specific exemplar that we're using. And it's, it's very easy to, uh, to read and to notice because, of course, all of these specific example parts are pulled out and put into a separated sort of box with a gray background. So it's really yep. obvious where the example text is and where the actual, you know, author speaking to the reader text, giving direct advice is at. Yep. And I, I love that they show their work, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is more framing in the, in the long term as well, because, you know, in the last book that we talked about, I talked about how I, I appreciate that they're making these worked examples, right? They're, they're showing their work. They're taking the suggestion that they've given you and they're saying, here's how I would apply it here, or here's an example of this here. And some of those were hit and miss, and some of them were much too wordy. In this book, they're not short form, they're long form, but yep. the way that they do it, the way that it's framed and the way that they do it it's the right amount. It's not too long and not too short. I think for the example parts, in most cases, there are a couple of exceptions. Sure. Um, but but I like the fact that they make this overall framing work for what they're trying to show because basically this is this book is about how to write a campaign and how to how to run an adventure with a, a noticeable, notable villain and how to make that villain uh, someone that's going to be memorable and how to run it well and not have holes and to have consistency and to sort of feel comfortable running it at the table. And mm -hmm. along with a bunch of questions about, you know, things to ask yourself when you're setting all of this up, of course. One of the things I think is interesting about this book as a way to read it would be to uh, sit down with chapter four of the DMG side by side mm -hmm. um, where there's a discussion of villains and how to build them and just see what's changed in advice on things like motive, you know, the explanation of possible motives and uh, you know, how that's changed. And, you know, spoiler, the answer is going to be very little. Um, so it's changed really, really, very, little. very little. So I don't disagree with you, but I think um, the fifth edition DMG doesn't give as much explanation. I oh, think. Oh, it, sure. It, I mean, they're they're dealing with they're, they have one chapter, not one book. Right, right. But I'm just pointing out the difference that the D, the fifth edition DMG assumes that you sort of understand what it means when we say the word villain. It doesn't spend three pages explaining what a villain is to begin with, which this book yep. does, right? Oh, sure. Um, and then the fifth edition DMG gives actionable items. It gives you tables. It gives you, you know, abilities and, and different uh, things to roll on and then discussion about those things or descriptions of those things. And it's a much more sort of actionable book, whereas this complete book of villains is much more theoretical in nature. And it wants you to absorb all of this and think about it and then apply it. But also we're not going to provide you, at least not yet, with any rolly tables, right? We're just going to give yep. you a framework and some suggestions, and then you have to come up with your own, you know, it's not meant to be a random 
generator yeah. type of book. Well, and there's enough here also about how to just hook the villain into the world that I think there's a like fairly strong nudge there to read this book and implement it, implement its advice, you know, before session one. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like this sure is you're a- designing more villains as you go along in the campaign, mm-hmm. but your first major villain, you need to have done this probably before session one. Right. And so actually that's a good point to say that this book is trying to walk a fine line. And that fine line is we are talking to someone who has never actually planned an adventure or campaign from start to finish. Maybe you've only run published ones, or maybe, maybe you haven't actually planned a campaign. You've just sort of done whatever, uh, you know? And so we're talking in part to a beginning DM kind of, who is just starting to try to build a framework for a consistent application of some techniques to create this adventure campaign with a villain. But also at the same time, we're talking to someone who has run enough D&D and knows the game well enough that this actual advice is applicable on a meta level. It's not full of mechanistic, you know, it's not saying here, make this first tier villain is a fourth level fighter and a second tier villain is a seventh level or above wizard. Like it does, it's not mechanistic like that. It's more about the ideas and feel of having a villain recurring or not in your game and how to implement that into your game in a way that makes sense and feels consistent at the table to the players. And so in part, it's talking to, you know, it, it kind of has that, it kind of has an issue with this, right? Because in part, it's talking to a new DM, and in part, it's talking to a, an experienced DM who just needs a little more framework in their brain about how to do this well. Well, sort of as some of the proof of what you're saying about approach in a way, um, and about how it isn't emphasizing you're a fourth level fighter. There's an 11 step plan to build your villain of you know, major questions you need to be asking yourself. Mm-hmm. Step 11 is abilities and alignment. Right. Right. That That's the very last one. Yeah. And they, they are really pushing you not to center who your villain is around that. Mm-hmm. but instead to let that flow out of the choices you've made before. Right. And to be fair, they do say that, you know, there are several ways to do this. And one way is to roll up stats first and then answer the questions based on the stats, but that it's also possible to do that last. And, yep. and, and it just depends on your style. So let's actually back up real quick and go uh, to, to the introduction. Cause the introduction has uh, a sort of, um, it, it has the it's the three pages of what is a villain that I was mentioning earlier. Sure. Um, and so it's it it makes this yeah, claim that really important too. Yeah. yeah that that villains. Um, it 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 basically is is making this distinction between a true villain and just an enemy. And um and this book is about true villains and true villains have some characteristic or there are some facts about true villains that will apply to all true villains but don't necessarily apply to all enemies. In other words, uh, all villains are enemies but not all enemies are villains. Right. So here are the here are the requirements to be a villain. Number one, villains are opposing forces. Okay. 
Um, it's its job in any story is to oppose the heroes, basically, is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Number two, villains are powerful adversaries. You're not just talking about run-of-the-mill thugs down the street, okay? You're talking about powerful, you know, powerful adversaries that are going to be major players in this campaign. Number three, villains are unsympathetic. Enemies can be sympathetic. Enemies can uh, can can have backstories that pull the heartstrings. Villains do not have that. Villains are so corrupted and bad that they have no. There is no way to garner sympathy about them. This one, I think, would. Yeah, this is the substantial rejection in the modern media context. Absolutely. Um, The next one, number four, villains have bad motives. Um, Also, strong, strong disagreement on that in a lot of modern media. Yeah, so the essence, so so they actually define bad motives, right? So uh, basically, their premise is a villain should have bad intentions regardless of whether they're actions are considered good or bad right so the example they give robin hood stole from the rich gave to the poor he is a person doing a bad thing theoretically speaking he is breaking the law that is a bad thing but he's doing it for a good reason so he's not a villain well he's also you know uh, causing actual harm just the, the people he's taking from have done more harm so right but i I'm just I'm giving their specific yeah. example, right? Um, next, the villain engages emotions. So they they basically your job is to give the players a villain they love to hate, right? It, it's somebody who is so bad that the players will enjoy, you know, hating this person and and making them this sort of larger than life looming villain in their brains. Um, yeah, so the whole reason I'm bringing this up is for the reason that you stated, that I think that it's a little bit black and white, um, you know, and they go into, this is just the introduction, it's not even chapter one yet, but and they're just trying to make the point of when they say villain, they mean a very specific thing, and they go into, in, in the first chapter, they go into some of the more nuanced details of this, but yeah, I agree with you, I, you know, I read this and I thought to myself, well, I think their description or their their definition of a villain is a little narrow. Right. Um, hmm. Though when you get into even just the first chapter and you look at the list of motives, um, Mm -hmm. some of them are a little shaky on uh, satisfying their own Mm -hmm. uh, rules three and four. So who knows? Right. And so like under that motive section here, they talk about Robin Hood again. They say bad intentions are even more important than bad actions. Bad actions are not strictly the province of villains. Robin Hood proved that a person can do a bad thing for a good reason. And even the little old ladies in Arsenic and Old Lace who poisoned old men did it out of sympathy for their loneliness. So here's the thing. First of all, I love that play, Arsenic and Old Lace. Great play. Uh, (laughs) it's, It's a wonderful story. But secondly, I believe, and I would I would make the case the old ladies from Arsenic and Old Lace are actually villains. Yes, they are. If I was uh, proofing this book, if I was editing this book, uh, I would have come back to him and said, "I don't think that's a very good example because I those women are are villains." 
Right. Uh, the problem is he can't call them villains because he also says villains are unsympathetic and they're actually sympathetic. Right. right. So um, this is where well, we, this is where we get into that. His, his definition is very, very narrow. Right. And as I was saying before, I think uh, media has really shifted toward preferring uh, villains with some sympathetic elements. Um, I mean, the the success of uh, Killmonger and Black Panther is a very key example there, right? Um, a lot of the conversation around Killmonger uh, amounts to uh, he had such a good idea, and then he did stuff wrong. That uh, there's this turn, and then when Killmonger comes back, and uh, what if? Uh, we see more of the same from him where, Hey, that's a really good idea. And if you were following through on just your stated idea, we probably agree with you. It's just that you abandoned your idea and went and did something much darker. So uh, my point is just Killmonger as villain uh, is my use case for how this differs. This book differs from where we are in the media of 2021. Um, I don't think ultimately things have changed that much in media. I think the authors like just deciding to call one thing a villain, one thing an enemy, as if that means anything structurally. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the idea of what a villain is and can be is greatly expanded, or maybe the better way to say that is much more nuanced in in the modern conception um that's not to say you know here's the issue though and this is what i think about this um you know that's not to say that previous villains were not nuanced because mm-hmm. some of them were in all throughout literature right yeah. um it's just that in the gaming milieu right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what what he's trying to do i think in this book is make a very strong definition so that he can then bounce off of that and so whether you agree or disagree with the definition or you want to put some more nuance on it is one thing but then he needs his work to follow from everything that is moving past the definition i guess is the thing and so i'm i don't, I don't want to defend the definition because i actually disagree with part of it but i i understand why he has this definition in here he's trying to sure. just he's trying to say this book isn't just about how to make a generic D enemy this book is truly about the big bad villain of your campaign and how you need to conceive of lots of different elements about that villain not just oh it's a bad guy and for that, I think he did a good job, despite this uh, possibly flawed, you know, definitional aspects in the beginning. Well, I, I think that you have it right. Ultimately, that the writer's goal is to make sure that, by God, this is D and D. At the end, you have to feel okay with killing the villain. I think I think that's actually where he's coming from. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so then, so then um, chapter one goes into how to define your villain. And it, it looks at uh, several, as you said, 11 steps that they, uh, they talk about these as the 11 aspects of a villain. They are the occupation, the objective, the motive, the personality, the attitudes and behaviors, the tastes and preferences, the surroundings, the history, the network, the appearance, and the, and then lastly, the abilities and alignment, which are your stats. 
Um, and it goes through and it describes each of these items. And then it provides a, a little sort of a tiny, you know, sentence or two about how they would answer the question for their exemplar, you know, th- their villain that they're creating as, as we go, right? Yeah. Um, and as you said, in the motive section, it, pro- it provides several different types of motives, achievement, affiliation, aggression, autonomy, exhibition, safety, nurturing, order, and power. Oh, succor and understanding. So it provides all these. And the thing I like about this section is that it provides sort of the definitional uh, answer or reason why this is part of the motive discussion. And then it's, you know, it kind of gives the sort of basic, oh, if a person has a motivation of being nurturing, or if a person has a motivation of autonomy, here's what that means for the general person. And then uh, next there is, but a villain, here's how a villain takes this to the extreme, and it turns into not just a neutral sort of characteristic. And I don't mean neutral as an alignment, just as a neutral basic characteristic yeah, yeah. of humanity, right? Yeah, value neutral. Yeah. Right, exactly. So our example character here is Bakshra, a warlord. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, the, the examples they, they work through are pretty much fine here. I'm not not seeing anything. None of these jumping out at me is really awful. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, he, he's a bad guy. He's supposed to be bad. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think as an example of them working through something that is has some of the obvious characteristics that that they're talking about or that he's talking about. I think it works as an example. Um, I think it feels dated, right? It feels a little bit dated, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I think that's just honestly because of the fact that, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, our conceptions of villains and different motives and all of that. And, and, you know, uh, having all of those sort of, ideas regarding stories and plots and themes and villains and different different nuances within all of that sort of area makes a little bit of this feel dated because some of it is very black and white feeling in terms of how it's being presented but again i understand that as from the example standpoint they're trying to just do a very cut and dry here's how this works here's our example and it works. It's a general. I, I like the warlord that they've produced. I like his motivation. I like how he, you know, the thing is that they create a very nice, succinct uh, villain whose actions are easy to determine based on based on what they've written about him. It's easy to determine, theoretically speaking, it's easy to determine what he might do in, in a given situation. So from that aspect, it's a well-done villain. Yep. Um, I'm not sure I would specifically use this one in my game, but uh, it's it's well done in terms of. An I will say that this one would work pretty well in my game overall. Mm-hmm. I mean, it mentions orcs. My setting doesn't have orcs, but mm-hmm. other than mm-hmm. that, this actually fits really well into yeah. um, my homebrew setting. Um, I would need to increase his number of soldiers, but otherwise, yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he was. His home was run by an evil cult. Sure, that's very common in my setting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Just yeah, it's, it's gonna all pretty much work for me. Yeah, um, it does remind me of some of the mm, setting assumptions that 
the very most baseline Tui was making. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in how the DMG has a two-page spread of different military units that would have been found in, you know, the known world of the uh, of medieval Europe. So it does go farther than Europe itself, mm-hmm. but it's just the world that they know they knew about, really. Yeah, um, I mean, also to be fair, in the next. I don't know, maybe it's the second or third chapter, one of those, it talks about the organization. And so they kind of keep his organization very simple because they're going to use it as the example, how to build an organization. Yeah. Um, I'm just, uh, I feel like, uh, you know, armies riding around on big cavalry units riding around doing stuff in large open plains is a really central image at least for the writers of examples of things right even yeah. if it's not a central image for setting designers or adventure <laughs> writers right yeah so much yeah um it comes up a lot in the dmg mm-hmm. um with, with some of the characters there and so it's striking me here how similar this is yeah um so just for the audience's sake uh so this warlord has this backstory that that has basically pushed him into being the leader of this group who their his motivation his goal i should say his objective is to um destroy religion so he what he does is he goes when they go to a new area they basically hunt clerics and and priests and kill them um and and for reasons because he has a backstory, it has to do with cults and this, that, and the other. Um, but that's that's kind of that's kind of that's the example. So yep. Um, and at the end of chapter one, it, it provides you know this sort of um, uh, this this sort of set of questions that cause you to question what you've just done. Um, but I mean that in a good way, right? Um, they want you to look at disparities, right? They want you to create contrasts within, and you know, in other words, don't just make this a, a two-dimensional villain. This person can feel three-dimensional by answering more of these questions to sort of get to more specifics. Um, and then, but it has, you know, it, it also has this really nice piece of advice. And the piece of advice is when you are convinced, stop. When the villain is believable to you, avoid burdening the character with unnecessary detail. Allow the villain room to grow during the course of the game, right? In other words, you don't have to detail out every single aspect of every portion of this villain's life and how that led to them being a villain and how that manifests today with them being a main villain. And that's really good advice because I think that's a trap people fall into. They fall in love with their villain and they write all this detail. They have all these things in their head about all these details. And then something happens in the game and it is more of a straight jacket than a tool to help you have a fun game. Yeah, absolutely. That that is a problem I know that folks have. And then it ends that chapter with the complete villains worksheet, which is really just a lined page with those 11 titles of those 11 steps on it for you to fill it in, (laughs) which is pretty generic. But, you know, sometimes just having a visual representation of here's how you could write this up is good enough. Uh, Yeah, it does kind of feel a bit filler, but that's fine. It definitely is. 
definitely is. Um, and then, uh, oh, it does also, oh, at the end of the chapter, it talks about uh, getting ideas, looking at newspapers, fiction, rolling on random tables, you know, how to develop your ideas further if you get stuck, things like that. Very sort of basic generalized advice. That's the idea. That's the part of the book that, or the part of the first chapter that gives me the idea that they're also talking to new DMs, right? They're trying to, to you know, ha- they're straddling this fine line between, am I really talking to experienced DMs that need to learn how to flesh out villains well, or am I talking to new DMs who learn need to learn how to just create a villain from scratch? And they're trying to serve both masters. And I think it's okay in the first chapter. As we go on, it might not stay okay. I'm not sure. So we'll see. Fair enough. Uh, so I think that'll bring us to chapter two. Yep. Uh, entitled... Henchmen, flunkies, and lackeys. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, which is, it's about creating the supporting characters for your villain and, um, you know, how how to create, you know, a couple of, of faithful servants or faithful individuals uh, that are in the sphere of your villain and why that's important and how you can do that and whether they should be similar or different from the villain and just different things to think about. Um, a half page of the neck, you know, one of the ha- half pages taken up with the supporting character record sheet, which again is a sort of a low effort. Here's some lines and here's some questions to answer about it. Um, no. The interesting thing is it talks about, you know, the villain has some practical needs and some emotional needs. And the two, the two, it's, it says to make basically two individuals, right? As an exercise, make two individuals. So all of the lackeys, flunkies, assistants, whatever also will have uh, practical needs and emotional needs. And really, this is just like a page and a half, uh, just telling you basically to have some contrast in there. Everybody can't be a carbon copy exactly alike with the same practical needs and the same emotional needs, because then there's no tension and there's no way to satisfy any of those motivations because they're all just the same. Um, uh, which is good advice, but I'm not sure they needed a page and a half in a whole chapter to say it. Well, I mean, I think my main thought about this is that I was expecting to see new definitions for like flunky and lackey being formal technical things mm-hmm. now. Right. Just because yeah. henchmen, uh, hirelings, and retainers mm-hmm. are meaningfully different things in secondary right. rules. Yep. Yeah. But not in this chapter. Not in this chapter. Um, and my other problem with this is they they really are defining this as the people around the around the villain. But right. this is pretty much lieutenants. Right. But then the example they give is Andrea, the priestess of Anthara, who is a captive. Right. And that's a little strange it's just a not not a good example i actually the idea is fine because of the way that uh the way that basically one of his his in the next chapter and when i read this i was like that's the really dumbest example i've ever seen they could have done so much better with that but then when they talk about the organizations they talk about there has to be a failing right there has to be some way to that that villain can be brought down. 
And sometimes or often that's within the confines of the organization. You know, it's that villain is going to have rivals or, or whatever. Um, And there has to be a way for the person to be brought down. Well, the way is that this entire brotherhood that's being created by this main villain is, has this goal of destroying religion and getting rid of all the priests so much so that they capture priests and then have hunts. Like you would go on a Fox hunt, except that they set the cleric free and they go on these hunts, but secretly spoilers for me, whatever secretly this guy, this warlord actually has a shrine in his castle, in his tower, his home base. And he, when he captured this priestess, she somehow, by dint of personality, made him not want to kill her. And so she's been trying to teach him about religion. But as a PC or a, as a character, he's got such a low wisdom, he's not really taking to the teaching very well, but he still hasn't killed her and that is a da- that's a failing, right? So that's the whole kind of story that's going on here, which is why they use her as the example lackey. But it's just a bad example. And it's just a bad example for this chapter. It's just not good. Well, not that the character is bad, but just they could have chosen a different one to give a different, to give a better example, lackey, right? Okay. I mean, there's. I agree. She does not have a position of service to him in this narrative, but mm-hmm. like it isn't that she's exactly actively resisting him in force of arms. Right. She's instead like stringing him along is the wrong phrasing, but just engaging him and engaging his curiosity mm-hmm. uh, as much as anything. So I feel like, um, the more interesting and successful you make her, the more you undermine it being okay to kill him in the end. Because their dynamic starts to really matter. And so I'll agree that the, the pitch of this title of this chapter is a weird fit with, for this, but, this character does a lot to add potential nuance, potential social interaction in the midst of the adventure, which is a, a nice, you know, change of beat. Um, and to add a possibility of a brighter timeline rather than just a murder timeline. Oh, right? absolutely. I don't disagree with any of that. And I, so, and that's why, so like, that's why I brought up though, that you don't find that out though, until later. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and like, so she's I doing feel like this chapter, but right. They, they were probably like, I feel like this example comes from even a later iteration of the idea of what the chapter could be than mm-hmm. what's actually on the page. Right. Right. And, and that's kind of my problem with it. Right. If she was the seventh or eighth example in eight lackey examples sure. or eight, that's like, fair. then I would say, okay, they're trying to show a very large sort of umbrella of all the different types of individuals you could choose to be around and and you know affecting this this main character villain person but the fact that they only made two and she's one of them it just i felt it was an odd choice 
I felt it was not. It's one of those cases where, okay, for, we're going to write this chapter as if we're talking to brand new DMs. Oh, but here's this example that is actually fairly nuanced. You're not going to hear all the nuances about until later. So that's kind of for experience. You know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of one of those spots that struck me as very. Actually, I think looking at the other example, like um, Pandan's emotional positioning relative to Bakshra Mm -hmm. actually just intensifies the, is this guy actually bad all the way? Like, yeah, he's, he has one bad idea, but what what's with these people we're supposed to like who definitely don't want him dead? I, mm-hmm. What's right. the positioning here? Right. Uh, there'd be some very mixed messaging from a DM, I, mm-hmm. I would feel. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I know DMs who would do that and then might help to spin that out and show, hey, this guy's really complicated. Maybe you want to push for him to take a better path and try to role play this character into submission rather than like engage him in direct violence. Mm-hmm. And that can be really interesting, but it's not a, not a villain by the book's definition anymore. That's definitely broken. Right. Right. Well, and later on, they talk about Pandan a, a little bit more uh, okay, okay, and, okay. and it, and, and again, it sort of, it makes it even more gray, right? Because it talks about, well, who has the power in that relationship? Is it, you know, and what would change that? Because it's talking about how to set up a power structure and, you know, it's in equilibrium, but that equilibrium can shift. And how might it shift? Well, here are the reasons why. And they use Pandan's, you know, relationship to Bakshra as the example. And it's kind of like, I see what they're doing. But again, like for me, the, 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 um, the dissonance comes from we're going to write this as if we're writing to a new DM, but then we're going to, we're going to, sometimes we're going to say these things that aren't, they don't really actually flow from the example, which is, you know, so anyway, um, so then we get to chapter three. <laughs> well, actually what gets me is that in the examples we're going to see in chapter three, they, they come out and name the people who should have been in those, right. you know, Flunky right. and lackey slots. Right, right, exactly. And that's why I say if if they had spent, you know, if they'd given eight eight individuals yeah. as the examples, right? Then and sh- and that priestess was one of them. Okay, now you're seeing people within the spheres of influence here who have different effects on this main villain. Fine, I I could accept that. But the fact that they chose those two as the anyway, so so chapter three is about the organization. And it talks about there being two basic types of organizational structure, the hierarchy and the network. And it provides various different aspects of each of those pros and cons. Um, you know, what's the power and authority? Where does that come from? What's the communication of each of those different types? What's the commitment and satisfaction of each of those different types? Uh, and, and so it sort of has this nice little graphic that that, that sort of, puts those against each other and says, here's how they're different. Here's how they're similar. That's fine. It's like a compare and contrast table. It's fine. Um, I think it's, again, here's where there can be some nuance in here. That's maybe not here. Sorry. I got very hung up on having to look up uh, Lancelot link of chump because <laughs> I, yeah. I was not alive when this series aired and it aired for very little time and so i wonder how <laughs> yeah. many people who read this book in 1994 were like 
you want what? me? <laughs> yeah. So he gives this, uh, it's talking about um, villainous organizations and it says uh, it, it, uh, they provide years of adventure as your heroes defeat individual villains within the organizations. And it provides several examples. Here's the examples. The cold war inspired hundreds of imagined evil organizations, many of which were assembled for the sole purpose of perpetuating villainy. James Bond combated Spectre, the special executive command for terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Lancelot link spent his career dedicated to the destruction of chump C H U M P all caps, which is, uh, a specific organization that he's referring to. Yeah. Um, so, so Sam, yes. Uh, have you seen any episodes? No, I of have not. Lancelot link no. secret chimp. No. Um, well, let's see. I have literally never heard of it other than this. I'm looking at, at a little Wikipedia right now, but. <laughs> uh, um, I, no, I've never, I've, I've not, I've, I've seen. Um, images of a chimp in a in like an inspector's hat right uh but uh-huh. like not it's it doesn't have the sort of uh the impact for me of of being a known right okay okay uh, uh quantity yeah. it went off the air exactly uh 10 years and six months before it was born <laughs> Uh, that, that off the air January second, nineteen seventy one was very. Oh, that's why I've never heard of it. There you go. Yeah, it's kind of one of those. Um, it, it's a thing that makes this book not age well. That some of the, you know, I, the Cold War reference is fine for me because I'm forty eight and I remember uh, the Cold War. <laughs> right. Uh, um. Also, that was somewhat larger of a cultural phenomenon. Than sure, sure. That's but, uh, link secret. But, right, right. But that's what I'm saying. And and I think the James Bond example is perfectly fine. And they talk about faceless corporations and renegade governmental agencies being villains in lots of different movies, although they don't name any. If they named some of those, that would probably be more recognizable than Lancelot, Link, and Chump, right? <laughs> um So, yeah, I, it's, it's, it is an odd reference. Uh, it, it is. It's, it's fine. Just, it's interesting the things that make a book seem dated, mm-hmm. right? Right. And it's technology and TV shows. There you go. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> but I do also really like the discussion of uh, hierarchies and networks mm-hmm. as you know, structural concepts. Right. Um, and you know, discussions of what those different things mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in general function i think that's pretty cool yeah i think it's a great thought exercise to just think about you know what's the difference between the communication strategy of a hierarchy slash bureaucracy versus a network and why that is the case when you're talking about a you know fantasy world like one of the things that they talk about is well the the hierarchy of course is going to have a much slower response in terms of communication, much, much slower, but it's accurate when you get it because it's on an official memo and everybody's doing their specific job and the left hand might not know what the right hand is doing, but when the memo comes down, everybody sees the memo and the memo is accurate. Whereas the network, the communication's real quick, but it's word of mouth until right at the end when somebody finally jots something down, which means you just played a really long game of telephone. Yeah. 
And then somebody wrote something on a scrap of paper, crumpled it up after they didn't need it anymore and threw it in the sewer. And that's what you're pulling out as you just battled those rats in the sewer. Now you found this piece of paper, right? So That's very specific. Yes, it's far <laughs> less accurate. I mean, I'm just going off, right? But it's less, less, less accurate than yep. something you would get from a bureaucratic entity. So the, the difference isn't actually how the people are structured, where they live, or how they how they are in terms of their organization, who works for whom. In some of the some of these examples, the difference is that, or the main difference here between the hierarchy and the network is that the hierarchy really depends on very strict rules and everybody following the rules within their own sphere of influence. And that sphere of influence for each individual in that organization is usually very small, except for the people right at the top. Whereas the network, the power is distributed almost equally amongst the different regions. And so therefore, what you get is something that's not so tied to the perfect implementation of a particular decision. A decision might be made, but then each of the individual little power spheres can decide how to implement that on their own, so to speak. That's kind of a not perfect way of saying it, but that's really the main idea here is that the hierarchy is really tied to specific structural decision-making that comes from the top and the network is not. And that does have, you know, as things filter down and things go through, that has different effects on the, on how, how, the PC facing events would be seen, so to speak. Yeah. Um, the discussion here is very good, though. You know, the, in this in this chapter, the, it talks about you know here are the things to think about in this organization. You know, what do they deliver? Yeah. How are they organized? Do they have advantages? Do they you know how do they establish conformity? Do they care about establishing conformity? How do they satisfy their clients or audience? Right? Who who's running that organization? Right? And then it. Then it provides an example of both types, actually. Yep. I, I think that's really, really good. Um, and uh, a group in which Bakshra is, you know, just a, a, an equal a peer, mm-hmm. right? In, in contrast to uh, the Bloodhounds, that's pretty cool. I, I yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, anything else you want to say about the uh, organizational? Oh, uh, I just think that the questions are very sharp here. I think that uh, there's nothing like that's going to be revolutionary to anyone. It's just mm-hmm. that there might be some nuance that you overlooked in your in your setup that they remind you to include. How do they establish conformity? I think is a really nice one for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, think I like you that could, one. As you well. could easily overlook that if you don't have that like as, as the very first part of your idea it might not be the second if you mm-hmm. see what i mean right yeah um, so yeah in in this one i i particularly like the way that they present the examples because um a lot of the examples here is just like two sentences and i feel like that's a really good example of don't go overboard, right? You don't have to write, you know, that was one of the problems with the last book, right? Is some couple of the examples were like five pages long and it was just too much. And it was, it was so much that it kind you kind of get lost in the weeds. Whereas here, the examples are, 
here's this, here's this hierarchy we're going to tell you about. Here we're answering those questions that we just talked to you about. And it's like one sentence or two sentences. And it's the perfect amount of balance between you're saying enough to make it important, but not so much that you, again, that you're, you're constraining yourself too much or, or getting too detailed. Yeah. But this the section, uh, good people in bad places, I think is, is pretty smart. Yep. yep. Uh, just you do need to have a, you know, f- fairly drilled down view of good. If we're talking about good, uh, and how much they are aware of their actions contributing to a net evil cause. Mm-hmm. If you've got a villain in secretly in charge of a you know, purportedly beneficial organization where the members of the organization think that, then okay, sure, go nuts, I guess. Yeah. But uh, what I take from right. it so is. Right. So, for example, if you had a front an organization that was a front that was uh, providing uh, food and, and housing placement for orphans or something. Sure. And then it turns out that the, the villain was actually taking half the money and funneling it into, you know, an organization that goes around killing priests, right? Like sure. that's, yeah. you wouldn't expect that person who's feeding the children in the soup kitchen to know that the main villain is right. So, right. And, you know, emphasizing graft as a central crime is an interesting idea. You don't see that that often. That's good. (laughs) Um, But a big part of what I take from it is just, are you going to be able to have interesting social encounters in the course of your investigation and pursuit of this villain, as well as a lot of great combat encounters? Well, this suggests, yeah, you you really should. so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then the, the chart that connects that the, the Fullerian Alliance, and the Bloodhounds is really nice. Yeah. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very good conceptualization. And uh, it reminds me very much of the Conspiramid from uh, Night Spike Agents, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which will have the innovation of the Conspiramid that so resembles this many years later. Right. And it points out, you know, that each of these, each of these arms coming off of the main Florian Alliance will also have what the bloodhounds has, which actually provides a very nice graphical representation of, wow, there's a lot of things supporting that main organization. Yep. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Um, then they get into uh, really drilling down on their implementation of hierarchy versus network. And th- the level of interest this chapter has in that strikes me as a little unusual. I don't dislike it. It's just um, they're, I feel like they're beating that drum a little harder than we would see in other books. Yeah, and that's why I said that thing about it. Um sort of there's more nuance here i think that Mm, could have come out but because they beat that drum so hard they very much are presenting it like a black and white it's either this or that yeah and you can even attach those two together as shown with this really brilliant graphic but it's still each part of it is this or that and and that's it and 
they only can be those things. And, but then they actually talk about, oh, but you know, the tide of time, time goes by and things change and the organization will only keep, you know, remain interesting if it changes due to responses to events. Well, but then yet it's only this or that, you know, it, it it's kind of this yeah. real, like, you know, it's almost like they didn't want to get too confusing. So they chose the black and white depiction of everything while kind of, almost doing the wink wink, but we know it's more nuanced almost. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to how I'm even going to structure this idea. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, these are the poles, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And it's really a, a spread between the two uh, rather than just A or B. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I do like is that there are, very lightly suggested rules or, or simulation guidelines for that drawback of a hierarchy of, you know, slower to communicate, right. um, slower decision-making process, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're not even broken out of the text or given any kind of special facing. So they're very, very hinted at rules. Uh, but I like that they show some, you know, real commitment to the ideas they're espousing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I can talk about it. They're giving you a lot of airtime, but also like the writer was interested in something and wanted to get at it. Okay, cool. Is how I feel. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. And that ends up being the end of chapter three, which leads us to chapter four, which I think is misnamed. The name of the chapter is introducing your villain. And the name of the chapter should actually be adventure structure. Yes, it should. Absolutely. It should. (laughs) That is quick thumbs to reveal that one real good. (laughs) Oh man. Um, Because it basically says, um, you know, that, uh, that, that there has to be a plot. Now, now that you have a villain, the villain has to, has to have a plot around them. Right. Um, and that you can you can create that plot in multiple different ways. You can you can draw a map and just you know kind of say, okay, well the villain is at the bottom of the dungeon of the lowest level, and okay, there's your there's your game and whatever, um, and ignore why that person might be at the bottom, but whatever. Uh, and then uh, you can also just do the plot first method where you decide what the plot is and how it must be resolved, and then the the players uh, run their PCs through it, or you can. Uh, you know, choose the villain first. And so anyway, it goes through all of these different sort of ways to think about creating an adventure. Um, And then it presents us with, or creating a plot, I should say. Uh, And then it presents us with the two different ways to conceptualize how an adventure might go. That is how, how the resolution of that plot that you decided about, how that might go. And they split these two ideas into what they're calling the linear adventure and the matrix adventure right and you know otherwise like matrix adventure is a, an odd framing to me but the uh, all- the graphic though the graphic they use a couple pages later is why they used matrix uh, also the movie the matrix had not come out yet right fair uh that's a that's a very good point um the, Talking about flow of a linear adventure. 
or oh, oh, Flovel, yeah, the the Matrix Adventures, those are nice as as an idea. Um, well, I just mean like like on page forty one, there's the actual picture, and that's often how a matrix is depicted, right? As a two dimensional like right. That that's a that's a good point for why they they called it that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's there's a certain amount of uh, okay, that's just a series of steps you follow in any order to get to the next major beat. But well, yes, right. Uh, it isn't quite event-based, but mm-hmm. they're correct that it's not linear. It's a little bit event-based, I guess, depending on if you're looking at the, um, the the time matrix aspects. Yeah, so so I think everybody that's listening could understand a linear adventure uh, really quickly. But the matrix adventure, they basically say, okay, there's three different uh, matrix adventures that you can have. You can have a space matrix where... Um, there are multiple different locations. That's the, that's why it's a space matrix because there's different locations and you have to go to each location. And generally you're going to go in a particular order, but maybe not, it's not linear. So you're not, you're not necessarily going one to two to three to four. You might go one to four to two back to three and then one again, and then four, and then go to your goal. Like it it doesn't have to be linear that way, but the way that they lay out the different um, objectives on the image is almost like an array, right? So if you're talking about mathematical terms, that could be considered a matrix and that's oh. a space matrix because each spot represents a different literal location in the adventure. Right. Then they have a space time matrix where it's got a similar setup, except now they have put constraints on how long it takes to get from one location to the other and there are constraints regarding what they might find at each location. Now it's not just a set. Okay. When you go to location one, here's what you find. If you go to location two, here's what you find. If you go to location three, here's what you find. Instead it's, well, you can go to locations one, two, and three, but now there's a chance because of timing, which is why this is a space time matrix because of timing, there's a chance that the item you're looking for, the person you need to talk to, to find that item is not in that location at that moment. Okay. And then there's the power matrix, which uses the same basic image, also implements the timing aspect, but then puts on some facts about it. So let me actually read the example because it's a little bit hard to conceptualize unless you're actually thinking about the example. In a linear adventure, if we said you have to go get the MacGuffin and you you ha- it's in three parts and you have to get part one before part two before part three, and here's where you go, town one, town two, town three, and then you go to the dungeon to find the fourth part, you put it together, and then you fight the big bad and you're done. That's a linear adventure. Okay. There's no other options. It's just linear. In the space matrix, um, if the mission is collecting a magical component from a wizard in each of eight villages and returning them to the castle so that you can cure the king, you don't have to go to those villages in any particular order, but no matter what order you go in, when you get there, the stuff that you need will be there. The person you need to talk to will be there and you'll deal with them. And then, so the choice lies in who you go to first. And that's the only part of the choice that matters, right? The space, that's a time, that's a space matrix layout in the space time it's the same mission go to uh, each town get a component from the wizard in each of the towns and return them so that you can cure the king however 
the wizards aren't necessarily in their own towns for any village that you go to. They are not there. If you roll a one or a two on a one D six, if you roll a three or a four, they're there. If you roll a five or a six, they're actually being visited by a different wizard. And then you have to roll to randomly determine who that is. It may be some, some from a village you've already been to, and it may be from a different village. And then they give you the time aspect. It takes a day to travel between adjacent villages, and it takes a day to travel from any village to the castle. And you only have 12 days to complete the mission. There's eight towns, you get 12 days, the wizards might not all be there. So you could see that now there's a different it's a different kind of adventure, right? Then there's yep. the power matrix adventure. So same same job, eight villages, one sick king, you got to get eight components. You have the same timing constraints, but then also you know the following facts. Number one, one of the wizards is actually trying to kill the king. Number two, one of the wizards wants to fake the king's death in order to expose their enemies. Number three, one of the wizards will ally with the highest bidder. And number four, one of the wizards wants to become counselor to the king. And you don't know which wizard or which of these rumors applies to which wizard and and in which town, right? So, of course, that power matrix is a much more fleshed out idea. It's a a much more – it's going to have a lot more meat to the events that you have. Again, you can go to the towns in any order that you want – you don't know who you're going to find there or if you're even going to find the person you want to talk to, and you don't know what that person's motivation is. So basically, it's trying to give a description of how not to be exactly linear, but to keep some of the linear ideas so that you have the ability to plan. And you know, you, you will still do a lot of improvising here, but you can at least plan certain things so that you're prepared for the game session. Yeah. Um, and. I gotta say, um, done with just some, maybe some minor tweaks. Uh, both the space-time matrix adventure and the power matrix adventure do sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. The power matrix is really close to just establishing a logic puzzle you have to solve. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yep. if you got these clues from prophecies so that they're allowed to be really super weird, that would be a fun logic problem, like mm-hmm. grid and everything. Um, right. I feel like I'm playing Clue, and that's probably a nice thing. Um, then the space-time matrix adventure, um, I like. Probably the only change I would make is to try to find a way to have a, a second wizard be visiting a little more often because that's mm-hmm. the most interesting scene, right? right? Uh, though maybe you're cheering for them to be away because you know they left the component there. And so you have a timed heist until they get back. So that's still super interesting, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. And so basically what that does is it opens up three possibilities, right? Either they're there and it's boring or maybe not boring. It's normal. You talk to them, you try to get the component, whatever. Um, But they're neutral. They're probably going to want to help the king. Or they're not there and you can try to get into their tower and try to steal the component, right? Yep. And try not to leave any trace of that so that you don't get hunted down by a, a wizard who's pissed off at you. Or they're there and they're with someone else who you may or may not have already talked to. And if you've already talked to that person, maybe it's going to be easier to get the component or maybe it's going to be harder. 
right? Maybe you already yep. robbed that second wizard's tower, <laughs> right? And and yeah. they already figured out it's you, and then you show up at this person's tower, and now there's a pro- right. So there's a lot there that makes it much more interesting than just go get these eight components from eight different places and then you're right. done. Um, yeah, just there's a lot of potential there. I I will say. The more I think about a space-time matrix, the more I start realizing, yes, you're adding in power elements, just thinking about what those encounters look like. Mm-hmm. like because like, you'd better give all the wizards personalities. Otherwise, you just should have had a much smaller number, right. the number you could write personalities for, uh, yeah. and, and go with that. Because this this works if the number is four wizards and not right, nine. Sure. Whatever. It's fine. Um, well, and here's my, here's my issue the, with this. The, the nice thing about four, just to mm-hmm. finish that idea, yeah. uh, rather than nine, is that it's much easier for you as the DM to remember to give every potential pairing of wizards a relationship dynamic. Right. Yeah. With, with nine, it's you know, I know DMs who could spin that up in uh, maybe an hour or two of prep, but I'm a slower writer than that, much to my misfortune. <laughs> No, I hear I will you. Sit there um, and doubt myself. I, I hear you, and and I agree. If if I mean, you know, I, I get the feeling that this example is a little bit off the cuff and basic on purpose, so that they could no, just it's expand fine. it and, and add those. But yeah. my my problem with this actually isn't what's in the different matrices, right? What's it? What's in the sure. different? Okay. My problem is they. I feel like this actually could have been. Here's how to create a power matrix adventure. Start sure. by doing this and then do the space matrix. Now add in a time element. Now you have a space time matrix. Now you want to add some complexity to the relationships. So you're adding in power, you know, different uh, relationships here, because that's yep. what these powers are. These rumors are about the relationships, right? And the motivations. And so add those in, boom, now you have a really nice sandbox feeling adventure that you can half improvise and half have planned out because you know motivations and relationships. And I feel like they spent so much time talking in chapters one and two about how the motivations and relationships matter that by the time they get here, they kind of forget how important they said that was and they provide it as an option rather than the goal of yeah. This planning schema, right? Like, I feel like this should have been a here's step one, step two, step three. Now you have a, if you don't have time, you can just do step one, right? And, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, instead, they present it as three different kinds of adventures. No, this is one adventure with three different levels of complexity. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's, that's pretty blatantly true, though. I mean, even if you were just running the space matrix adventure, there are ways to make going to each individual village interesting enough mm-hmm. that yeah, you're off to the races. Oh, sure. Right. And here is actually where we get the the Pandar um, thing about the relationships and, and ties between characters, because it talks about, um, you know, you have this web of, of the reason they're calling it power matrix adventure is because that's the power relationship that might shift based on the different events. Right. And so in the example, it says, um, you know, if Pandar, that person that, that, that lackey that, that we got the example of in chapter two, if Pandar is dependent on Bakshra, the, the main warlord for his job, then that gives Bakshra power over Pandar. But 
Um, if Pan and if Pandar has no other source of employment possibility at all, of course that give, adds to the power that Boxer has. However, if Pandar can easily get a job in the next town or somewhere else or for a different person, then he's not as dependent on Boxer, and that shifts the power balance in their relationship. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about power. Um, it also talks about what happens uh, if he could get trained to do something else. And th- there's there's all these sort of different things. And it's giving that as an example of how to think about the different power balance between relationships in your adventure. And it's kind of stuck in there in the middle of the of a giant wall right. of text. It's, it's, a, it's a paragraph about labor relations. Yeah. In the midst of uh, something about adventure design and that's right. an interesting choice it's, but it's yes it's kind of odd right it's, it's wall of texty this is sort of hard to skim right it's not the kind of thing that you can easily skim and so it's easy to just have your eyes glazed over and move on yeah yeah um that said like that particular dynamic feels a little bit hard to get PCs really invested in unless like um, Pandan is their bestie, right? Mm-hmm. If they're invested in him through a very strong bond already, then seeing how their choices affect him could really land. But boy, if they're not already super invested then why do they care about him? Right. Like that's, yeah, this, this dynamic won't get them going there is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it makes a point early on. I can't remember what chapter it makes a point about how, you know, and it might even be in that whole uh, lackeys chapter. And it's just a very quick, like basically if you're, if the PCs don't have a relationship with the NPC, like, don't bother spending a lot of time on that NPC, right? Like you might have to improvise some of that development of that relationship, but if there's no relationship to begin with, that's not going to be a good motivation for the PCs. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that actually, that's a point that really gets to one of the longest recurring problems with staging villains in D&D when I don't know if we're going to see them really talk enough about uh, which is for so many main storyline villains their first appearance on camera is three rounds before their exit right that's brief to try to really build the heat and sell the villainy Mm -hmm. it's brief yeah yep so that just makes this, uh, you know, a, a bit tough to communicate as much as they've you know, spun up about Baksha here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be seeing the effects of what he does long before you see the stuff. Before you meet him personally, right? But, but uh, you know, and the thing is, like. So it, it kind of skirts around the good advice about what you're talking about, because in the very beginning, the very first thing that it does in the introduction is it gives a little detail of a person like a villager from somewhere talking about Bakshra yep. and, and what happened to his town when Bakshra and his men showed up. And it's a nice little narrative, like three paragraphs, whatever. And basically what it's saying is, without saying it, it's saying, if you have a villain 
that is going to be the big bad for for one of the you know main arcs of your story, if not the main arc of your story, then the players and their PCs need to hear about the horrible acts of this person long right. before you get to the point where they're meeting that person, especially if they're meeting them in combat. Because as you said, if it, if it does get down to combat, that person might only be around for two or three rounds or, or they might have to escape and then you don't hear from them. But, but, you know, like that's a whole different thing. It doesn't even give advice about that. And it doesn't even say specifically, Oh, be sure to foreshadow this person it has not said that yet in the parts that I've read of this book, um, which I think is a, a major failing because it talks about their motivations and what they're doing. And it, it's, it's right here in the end of this uh, fourth chapter. It talks about in, in, enter the villain is the name of the section. And it's trying to show how to bring this villain into the story, but it doesn't actually ever go so far as saying, let the deeds that are controlled by this villain and his organization finger out so that they touch the players before yep. they even know his name. Yep. I mean, well, like what the, and that starting example NPC and uh, later this start to tell you uh, maybe more implicitly is name drop your villain as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you need to be building characterization and building interest in this character as early as possible, and man, that the that opening uh, box text with the the, the peasant talking about Baksha, mm-hmm. that's that's pretty good, convincing stuff. Yeah, like that's that's well yeah. done. Yeah, um, and um, this is you know continuing that idea um, in Enter the Villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you are right, it doesn't quite deliver on what the header actually seems to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's like the things it's saying are good. Just make sure you know what you're saying and, and stay on topic there. Yeah. Um, and then we get into describe your villain right this moment. Exactly where are they when they are first on camera? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, handled with a series of questions, uh, six questions about the circumstances right this moment. What just happened? Uh, what's their objective? What's their micro objective? You know, mm-hmm. what's the big picture? What's the next step? Um, what's the means to that objective? And what are they going to do? What's next? Uh, those are good. I mean, that's, you don't necessarily need to step through these as a process, Mm -hmm. right? It's just try to try to have this kick around in your brain. Just make this part of your brain meets now. Right. Uh, That's, that's pretty good. Right. I find that uh, up through, this is page 45 or so up through this, pretty much all the questions that they ask as a a sort of these leading questions that they're trying to get you to answer about your villain. It's really just to think about this question because you're going to want to answer this so that you can improvise well and characterize well and present the motivation well. 
of of this character, this NPC in your game. Um, all these questions are spot on. They're well written. They're short. The examples they provide are short answers. You don't have to write three pages about any answer to any of these questions. Um, in general, I think it's really well done in terms of that. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, this is this is solid stuff so far. Uh, we have some quibbles, but it's solid stuff. So. And honestly, um, to to be to be perfectly honest, I think the quibbles I have with this really only stem from the age of this book. Uh-huh. To be to be perfectly honest, I just yeah. think that um, what we know about storytelling, what we know about story beats, what we know about integrating villains and and making uh, a more sort of sandboxy style game uh, versus an extremely linear one is much more nuanced nowadays. Um, yep. And it's just an accepted part of gaming. Um, and this book is not written from that perspective or premise to begin with, because of course it was written, you know, 25 years ago. So sure. um, I feel like that's where my quibbles all come from versus, you know, versus them being because this is poorly written or not well thought out or something, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, well, this gets me thinking about um, wondering how prevalent the, um, the various, matrix style uh, plot structures are in adventures getting written at about this time. I I feel like uh, the linear structure was the thing in almost all of the thing Mm -hmm. in, Mm -hmm. in about 94. I'm not going to say I've read exhaustively through adventures of 94. Don't get, don't get me wrong here. Just, I have that as an impression in my mind. Um, Well, and if you look on page 38, they have a nice flow chart of a linear adventure. Yeah, Um, which is linear-ish. They're doing a good job of remembering to to leave space for branching choices that still loop back to, you know, getting where we're trying to go overall. So we're going to see a bit of a, a topic shift and what they're helping you implement in chapter five, delivering the goods. Um, And this is very much just portrayal at the table. Like this is some very acting 101 level stuff. And that's great. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. And we saw some of this also um, in in DMGR one actually. And also I think in DMGR five. Yep. Right. Um, and that actually shows how important this is. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is very much the, the advice you're just going to keep getting. Like, it, nothing is more timeless than yeah. just uh, how to portray NPC. Go. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. This is how you try to sell something physically. And, you know, now that we have so much taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, over Zoom and and Discord and right. Roll Twenty and everything. Um, it's interesting to think about which of these don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But for those for the, for that format, right? Standing mm-hmm. up and moving around, mostly bad. Right. 
Um, yep. If you're on a camera, it's kind of okay, but I bet it kills your mic access. Yep. Like, well, and and, and also in, also it doesn't have the same effect it did, so it's not even worthwhile right. to do it now. Yeah. And there are things you can do to try to balance that. Like you can do something with your background that's really specific and mm-hmm. you know customized. That could help set a mood, but you know, a lot of this is not possible in uh, virtual gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that I and and at the same time there are some things possible, right? Like one of the things I used to do if I was if I had uh parties go down deep into the underdark, um I would stand behind them and if they heard huh. something or if they were starting to get paranoid, I would lean down and I would talk really low and very calm <laughs> and slow and I would tell them, you know, it just the kind of subtle, you know, yeah off-putting thing right because that's uncomfortable to have somebody stand behind you and then lean down and almost whisper in your ear right like Uh that's yeah you know that's really kind of creepy and odd and it puts you you know in an awkward position and and it that feeds into how that person responds when they talk about what their pc is doing when they heard that drippy noise or they saw some you know phosphorescence up ahead or whatever you know and that you can't do that at all when I'm when if I'm running a game online, I can't really do that at all. I can do the whisper, talk low and slow part, but I can't do the walk behind and make you physically uncomfortable part. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and and just also don't do these things in a um, convention game. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no. Uh, again, yeah. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Know your players. <laughs> I knew my players. I knew. Yeah, yeah they for knew, sure. They knew for me. sure, for yeah. sure. And it, yeah, yeah. No, no. I would not do that to somebody I did not know because that is really un. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Of course, yes. Um. um yeah, but my, but my point is, but but on the other hand, you can do things that you can't do when you're at a regular table, like whisper. Right. Sure. I mean, use yep. the whisper function like on roll yep. 20, where it, it will send a message only to one player or, you know, pass notes between different people and the others literally cannot see them. You can use that sort of thing to good effect. Right. Like I in my yep. Rhyme of the Frost Maiden game, I have one player who has some weird effects uh, because of their uh, secret. Oh. And every once in a while, you know, their arms start burning and they start hearing a female voice singing the rhyme. And I don't have to do that as a DM. I don't have to sing the rhyme and say, only you hear this or whatever. I just send that player a message. Yep. And you see their demeanor immediately change, right? Because we're on video as well. So you can see the demeanor immediately change and they start acting accordingly. And that works really well. I couldn't do that if I was in the same room. I mean, I could do it sort of, but it'd be different. And so, yeah, I think some of this advice kind of falls down just because um, it's almost 30 years old, but also because it doesn't take any technology into account and it doesn't take the pandemic into account, obviously. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, that's, no, not, actually, that's not a knock, right? I'm not right, right. Them for that. No, I'm just interested in that as a difference yeah. and as a, a way our thinking has had to shift, not, not criticizing the book for it. Goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I'm also a LARPer, and so all of this is, yep, that's how you do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Bang on. Good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and to be fair, this is still really good advice oh, if yeah. you are playing in person. 
yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with this. Um, so then we get to describing events, uh, which is uh, just creative writing one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but also still factors into you know how actors create a character, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And so that's that's very, very cool for it. Uh, it touches on show don't tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this advice in the book, right there, folks. Right. Yep. Uh, and then attention to detail, uh, which you know, same. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Uh, there. I mean, yes, you need to do those. Um, the uh, delivering that advice here, it while well, they do, they are trying to talk specifically about uh, the the villain, how you're the, how you're actually portraying the villain. Right, the, the the actual in session, we're doing it live, moment mm-hmm. of the villain, right, uh, and so that, that that counts, sure, good enough, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to end it for us tonight. Unless you have anything more, Sam? No, I, it's it's almost exactly halfway through the book, so I think that that's a good place to stop. It yeah. also the book does almost a. I won't say a tonal shift, but it shifts into a sort of different, um, different kind of main setup here. It's, uh, you know. Yeah, it's much more suggesting answers to some of the questions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I, um, I'm, I am pleasantly surprised at this book. Um, I think it's, it's very good. I think I, I did. I actually, you know, you talked about earlier taking out chapter four of the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, and I actually did that, and I looked at, you know, what is in there, and uh-huh. and um, and uh, this actually is a really good complement to to the DMG. You know, one of the things that you and I talked about, and with our guests hosts uh, on the when we went through the fifth edition DMG, one of the yep. things that was brought up quite often was, you know, who's the audience for this book. Yep. And I think what we're seeing here in this complete book of villains is I, I'm kind of asking the same question in in a lot of these cases, but I think that the audience here is a, is there's a lot more detail in this book because they yep. just didn't have the room in the in the DMG right because the DMG right. is so much more expansive. Uh, I, I do think that the like the the density of this text um, and the like, conversational level it's operating on mm-hmm. uh, means that if you are if you're new to all of this and you you kind of just need something you can latch on to this is going to resist you a bit mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you you really have to read the whole thing and engage with the text um, you're, you're not going to get enough from a light read because it is a lot of that's a lot of paragraphs it's not even a new header Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this book could have easily been called uh, the complete workbook of villains, right? Sure. Yep. Because, and they could have structured it uh, to be, here's how to do this. Now let's do it a couple times. Right. And, and that's kind of how it is, but without the, without the, I'm directly giving you homework kind of text. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, they don't go full tax for me with their, um, you know, blank page, right? Uh, 
uh, of stuff. The uh, the supporting character record sheet. Well, it, I might be filling out a you know um, primary physician's you know, medical records there, but it's not a yeah. tax form, so that's better. Same, <laughs> whatever. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> altogether, yeah. it's a really strong text so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like you were saying, um, this is this is really standing up pretty well uh, to to new read. Um, whatever our quibbles, I don't mm-hmm. think any of them rise to the level of, well, that's a problem. No, no. Yeah. This is, this is good material. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think, I think um, it, it definitely rises above creative campaigning. Uh, I right. think that book suffered from something this book doesn't suffer from. This book knows exactly what its goal is. Yep. And it, it goes for it and it stays pretty much on that goal. And it's doing a good job of it. So, well, I, I'd like to suggest that it does not suffer from the weakness of lack of accredited editor. <laughs> That's true. Although and there are quite so, a few typos in it, I have to say. Well, um, they are not, not as many as <laughs> campaigning. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I try not to. I. I you know. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I'm. I'm trying not to, to call those out as much as you. you know because they they don't really. Um, it's not so much that it detracts from the reading of this particular text, um, though some of the editing and creative campaigning did detract from the yes. from the reading. And so that's a problem when it detracts from the reading is a problem. It's not a problem if they misspell a word here and there or forget an S or an apostrophe here and there, because you could still read and get the con- through context to get what they're trying to say. But creative campaigning really actually had some major problems uh, in that area. So Well, and a lot of the earlier chapters, I think just an editorial hand with a direction to try to find about 10% of these words to go away. 20% is better. That that could have gone a long way. Yeah. I'm only really talking about proofreading, right? Like I'm I'm just talking about the basic editorial proof that goes through. I'm not even talking about editorial direction, right? Yeah. But that is something one tends to expect. Absolutely. Anyway, yeah. I digress. Anyway. <laughs> Back in your previous episode. That's a long digression. Um, so uh, we'll pick up next time with Chapter 6, Monsters into Villains. Uh, Sam, where can our listeners find you? Ah, you can find me on the internet on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on uh, on the web at RPGmusings.com, or, of course, on the Tome Show that you are listening to right now. And what about you, sir? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. You can find me on Tribality. That's tribality.com, where I'm, uh, well, not as frequent a writer as I'd like, but I'm doing okay. Um, my personal blog is brandisstoddard.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Awesome. And this ends the seventh day of Christmas. Come back tomorrow to hear the second half of this book. Maids a milking. (laughs) Stay safe, everyone.